0: Our scripture is Mark three thirteen through 35. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagernes, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Bazul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my brother and my my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother.
1: Amen. Thank you, Kathy. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this word. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege it is. To worship you, we thank you for the chance to pray to you, to sing to you, and now uh, to hear your word. God, we pray that you're the same spirit uh, who empowered Christ, uh, who sent uh, him into the desert, who sent him uh, throughout the region of Galilee as he ministered, and ultimately the same spirit who would raise Christ from the dead. We pray that same spirit would be at work in us in such a powerful way today that we would follow you like never before. In Christ's name. Amen. We uh, come to uh, this next part of Mark, and it has reminded me of, of places where in life we know the difference between being on the inside with a group of people and being on the outside. Uh, Amber and I were talking this past week about uh, times at the very beginning of our relationship when we started meeting each other's families. And yet you know, when you first uh, come in contact with anybody's family that's not your own, you realize, you know, this, this isn't my family. They do things a little bit differently. I, I frequently have told the story of going to Amber's house for dinner for the first time. I, I grew up, I just have one little brother, so dinner time around the table, you know, once we were old enough not to throw our food, I guess, you know, with just four of us was pretty, pretty relaxed. Like, you know, I, occasionally I would get mad at my brother or something, but it's not loud. The Green family, on the other hand, uh, at the time they only had four kids. Now they're up to eight, but th- it has always been a loud house. The first time I sat at that dinner table, there was like three conversations going on. All the women in their family—they just—they all talk at the same time because conversation is just more efficient that way. You know, they just are listening and talking. It's so loud. I remember sitting there the first time, like, I have no idea what's going on. You know, Amber's same feeling of experience of being an outsider happened the first time she saw an iron bowl game at my house. So my parents are Auburn people. Uh, You don't say "Roll Tide" in my parents' house unless. You want to be kicked out of my parents' house, you know? So they're huge. Auburn, Alabama, you know, that game is a big deal. Amber came that time at Thanksgiving and saw that game and was like, who are these people? Like, I do not want, you know, she had to leave. She's like, I'm going to go shopping or something. You know, it's just, She was like, I don't know who, the, who this family is. I have now uh, grown accustomed to loud, green family households. Amber still will not watch the Iron Bowl with my family. It's just not, not worth it, you know? There's this inside-outside mentality. Uh, they come. Like, is, is, am I on the inside of this group? Is this my group of people or are they, you know, a different, a different crowd? Uh, we see this with just uh, simple things like inside jokes. You know how it works. You spend some time with people and y'all have a joke together and, and something happens, and y'all laugh and everybody else is like, what just happened? You know, I, I, this was in my notes before it just happened during the South Dakota mission trip uh, report here just a little bit ago. Somebody was telling a story, and somebody said, yeah, oatmeal, cream, pies. And they will go, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, that's not fun. I don't don't get it, you know. They explained it. I kind of laughed, you know. It's good. But it's an inside joke. It's when you're on the inside, you get it. When you're on the outside, you don't know what's going on. In a season of life where it feels like everything is divisive, it's probably more important than ever to figure out what does it mean to be on the inside? Who's on the outside? Who's on the inside? And of course, most importantly, who's on the inside with Jesus? No other group matters nearly as much. There's not any comparison. If we want to figure out if there's one group we want to be on the inside with, it's Jesus' group. And that whole book of Mark, this Gospel of Mark, is really a presentation to all of us to have the same offer, the same invitation given to those first disciples is given to us, that Jesus calls us to follow Him. So we've called this series through the first half of the book of Mark, Follow Me. All of us, we have this deep core desire for acceptance and love. We want to be accepted into the right group and the right family. We have this deep desire for affection to be on the inside. And so when we go through this story, as we continue through this account of Jesus' life, we want to see where Jesus is, is inviting us in. The problem is sometimes the group that comes in and the group that's on the out isn't quite like we would expect it. And so we want to follow through this and ask, who, who's on the inside, who's on the outside, and, and what determines the difference between the group? And the question I want to leave you with today is, where are you? Where are you? Are you on the inside or are you on the outside? And before you rush to, to answer that, be patient and let's walk through this and make sure you're answering that accurately. Right. The first section, I didn't ask uh, Kathy to read the whole thing, but the, the part right before she started reading, actually starts in verse 7, and uh, it starts with this group of outsiders, and so the first group I want to see, the first point uh, in your outline today is that there are outsiders come in seeking Jesus. Outsiders come in seeking Jesus. If you've been following with us through Mark, if you go back and read the first couple chapters You know that Jesus' popularity is starting to grow. There is a huge crowd that is beginning to follow Jesus, and every chapter, every section, that crowd, at this point, feels like it's continuing to grow. Uh, Last Sunday, we saw in Mark 2, the house was so full that for somebody to get to Jesus, they dug a hole in the roof and came in through it. That's how big the crowd is. They can't can't even get to Him. Here today, the story goes even further. Listen in, in verse 7 to this, this group that's describing, uh, that's being described as following Jesus. Jesus, it says, He's around the sea, so He's at the Sea of Galilee. That's where he's, he's preaching from. And then it says, so people from Galilee, the region where He is, are following, plus people from Judea and Jerusalem, which would have been to the south. Then there's a group from Idumea, that's just a group to the southeast. Then there's a group from across the Jordan River that was even further east. Then there's a group from as far as Tyre and Sidon, and that's 100 miles away to the northwest, full of Gentiles. So basically what he's doing is he's saying, Jesus is here. You know the map, the little red dot, you know, you are here. Put it on the Sea of Galilee. And then Mark just drew a circle 100 miles in diameter and said people are coming from all over here to come see Jesus. The point is, these people are coming from far away, and they're not just your around the town kind of people. From 100 miles away. I mean, you've been to a place before where everybody knows, hey, you're not from around here, are you? Right? Like there's such a big crowd. They're they're pointing around like, well, they're from so-and-so and they're from there. It's a humongous crowd. All these people from all these different places, and they're seeking to get in with Jesus. They're outsiders, but they're trying to find their way in. We saw last week Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Apparently, this is the kind of guy Jesus is. He attracts people from all kinds of different walks of life who are all seeking what He has. Now, clearly, they're attracted to Jesus because of what He's doing. It says in verse 8, they heard all that He was doing. So all these miracles, especially His healings. So they're coming and they, they want something. They want something from Him. So clearly, they, they don't fully get it. Jesus is, is preaching about a kingdom. He's got a message for them, but all they want is the result. Now, the demons get it. He cast out a demon. The key demon says, yeah, I know you're the son of God. And he tells the, the demon to be quiet because even if the information's correct, you don't want a demon preaching for you, right? So Jesus tells him to be quiet, all right? But the group of outsiders, they don't, they don't fully get it. They're coming. They're looking for something. They're trying to come in, but they don't fully get it. And some of you may be there today. You may feel like an outsider to Jesus-y things still. Maybe you've been around the church or or you kind of have an idea of what church is about, but you don't feel like you've made it all the way in. And you may even feel like you don't, you don't fully get it. You get some things about Jesus, and you understand some parts of what it means to follow Him, but you don't feel like an insider yet. There's, there's some comfort here that Jesus is welcoming that kind of crowd, even that kind of crowd, to follow Him. Now, we may read a few of these verses and feel judgmental toward them, just like we may feel judgmental in the church sometimes. But here's a group of people, they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And it's especially important for us to remember to be sympathetic to that group when we look at another group that's around Jesus. We're going to come back to verses 13 and 19 in just a moment, but go with me down to verse 20, because Jesus comes home to His own family. I mean, what could be more different than a group from 100 miles away, from a different culture and different religion, it feels like the very opposite of that is his own mother and brothers and sisters, right? His own family. And so this whole crowd is all gathered around him. and It's so crowded they, they can't even eat together. But what does his, his family think about him? This is who Jesus grew up with, right? What, what do they think about him? Maybe, maybe they think, uh, how do you think they respond when he comes home with this big crowd? Maybe they're going to say, hey, they're, they're excited that they're, their own Jesus has got this Growing ministry. Or, or maybe they're uh, concerned about his safety because it seems like this crowd could, could turn into a mob at any point. I mean, he's got an escape plan already. He's got a boat there that he could get across the sea if he needs to. Or maybe they're, they're just they're praying for his, for his ministry. It must be stressful and they're, they're praying for strength. Is that, is that how his own family responds to him? No. Verse 21, it says they go and they try to pull him out of the crowd because they say, say he is out of his mind. His family thinks he's gone crazy. His own family thinks that he has lost his mind. Okay, well, maybe that that crowd didn't get it, but maybe the the religious leaders, maybe they they are, you know, they're walking with, maybe they understand what's going on. I mean, these are this, they're called scribes, so they would have known the Old Testament law and prophets. So maybe these guys knew the prophecies, they're anticipating the Messiah. Maybe they're eager to, to, to learn from this. Great teacher and miracle worker. Maybe they're, they they too, maybe they're praying for, for power and, and for God to, to work in mighty ways through this man. Is that how they respond? Nope. Here's what they say. It gets even worse. In verse 22, they accuse him of being possessed by demons and say, by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. What, what is going on here? There's a group from outside, from far away, that's trying to seek Jesus. But the people who are already on the inside, are really on the outs. Insiders are on the outs with Jesus. Outsiders are seeking to come in, and the insiders are on the outs. It's almost hard to read Jesus' description of his own family in this moment as they've watched him grow up, and as surely they've understood bits and pieces of his mission and his calling and who he is. And yet when the time comes and His ministry is beginning, and the kingdom of God is showing up in a powerful way, they are rejecting Him. They are c- casting Him out. They are saying, you're, you're surely crazy. And the scribes, I mean, of all people, they, they knew the prophecies. They, they should have anticipated what was coming. And yet, though they too should have been insiders, they are on their way out. They are bi- biological and religious insiders. <laughs> And yet they're on the outside. Mark uses an interesting technique that if you go through Mark's gospel, you'll find this a few times. He mentions something, then he mentions another topic, and then comes back to the first thing. Makes like a sandwich. That's the the technical Bible study term. It's a sandwich. There's probably a better one for that. But you'll notice that he does this. So here he talks about the family, talks about the scribes, and then comes back to the family. And the reason Mark does that is he's saying these two things go together and you're supposed to help interpret one another. And in this case, it's two groups that should have known what was going on with Jesus, and yet both of them miss it. And unfortunately, that happens far too often, doesn't it? Groups of people that should be on the inside with Jesus tend to be the people who miss Him. The people that, that are right around Jesus can be the ones who miss him. Sometimes like this biological connection, it could be a group of people who have always had family in the church. Maybe you're like that. I- I'm like that. My-, my parents, their parents. Maybe you grew up around the church. You were always there when the doors are open. Maybe they're kind of group of people that being Christian is just a part of what it means to be in the family. That happens in, in southern culture more often than not. That, hey, everybody in our family, we're- we're- of course we're Christians. What else would it we be? We're just We're all around here together. And yet it's easy to be close in proximity around Jesus and totally miss him altogether. Totally miss him altogether. Jesus's family proves you can be around him and yet not know him at all. Not know Jesus at all. Being around him doesn't mean you know him and being religious doesn't mean you know him. The scribes They they knew the book better than you and me, probably. They knew the book. They kept the rules. They were right there around him. They they saw the Messiah in the flesh and they missed him. You You can warm a seat. You can do things in the church. You can be religious and miss Jesus altogether. Being right around him doesn't mean you know him. Knowing him is having a relationship following Him, seeking Him, loving Him, and receiving love from Him. Family, the religious leaders, they, they never truly abide with Him. They're just around Him, and it's not the same. There's a big warning here, I think, for the church, our church, the southern church, the church worldwide, because you can look like you're on the inside and yet be on the outs. If you never take an honest evaluation of your own spiritual life, your own Christian walk, then you, you could miss it. You could be right there next to Jesus and miss him altogether. That's true of people who, who don't know him at all or around him, but they don't know him. But there's also a lesser temptation. There's a temptation for a group of people, I think, who, who know Jesus, have a relationship with him, and yet this kind of the insider mentality starts to take over and kind of pull our hearts away. You start to think, yeah, I, I have a relationship with Jesus, so I'm, I'm good. I, I'll serve instead of learn. I, I, I'll do something. I'll stay busy, but never, but stop abiding. Stop really dwelling with God and dwelling with His Son. If you feel like an insider in the church, then hear a warning that we've got to be careful that we're not actually on the outs with Jesus. So far in Mark 3, the outsiders are seeking to come in and the insiders are really on the outs. Jesus' family thinks He's crazy. The scribes think He's demonic. And so it's time for Jesus to speak up and clarify some things. And like so often happens when Jesus speaks, it's life-changing. And it can be life-changing for you and me if we listen, if we really hear. We could be around it today and miss it if we don't really hear. But here's Jesus' message. Jesus, for us, I think, has the same message for us, and that's that Jesus rescues us out of captivity. Jesus rescues us out of captivity. In order to truly be on the inside with Jesus, we have to recognize that we need to be rescued out of something else. We need to be rescued out of captivity. Jesus directly refutes the claim of course, that he's demonic. Of course, that's insane. He says clearly uh, in 23, 24, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So he's saying this doesn't... Your, your accusation that I'm demonic, Jesus says, that's, that just doesn't make sense. If Satan was the one casting out Satan, it's like a king of a castle attacking his own castle, bombing it, shelling it, trying to destroy it. That, that's not going to work. That's not what's going on here. But Jesus tells another parable or metaphor... To understand, for us to understand what he is doing to Satan. Verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house. So Satan is like the, an evil king, an evil ruler of a castle. And he has taken captive a whole bunch of people and locked them away in the dungeon. And so Jesus is saying, it's not like the movies where some spy can kind of sneak in behind closed doors and release the captives. It doesn't. The movies make it look like that. It doesn't happen that way. Jesus is saying, if you're going to release captives from the prisoner, from the dungeon, from the castle of this evil king, you have to deal with the evil king first. You have to go to the evil force first, defeat him, bind him, and then you can release the captives. So Jesus is saying, that's what he has come to do. Jesus is the king of the good kingdom and he has come and he is binding the strong man, binding the evil ruler, Satan himself. He has come to crush him, to defeat him once and for all so that he can set us free. Satan's ultimate weapon is death. And the temptation he uses to lure us into that uh, destruction is sin. That's how he brings us into his grasp. And once we're captives, We can't get ourselves out. Prisoners cannot get themselves free. It takes somebody else coming to rescue us, to get us out of captivity. Tim Keller, one pastor, said, uh, before Jesus can do something in us, He had to do something for us. Before He does something in us, He has to do something for us. The gospel, the good news, is first and foremost a proclamation of what Jesus has done. When Christ on the cross says, it is finished. He's saying, this is what I have accomplished for you. You had no part in it. We don't set ourselves free. We don't work hard enough to be prisoners worthy of rescue. No, we are sinners. We are captives. And Christ has come and He has bound the strong man with His death on the cross forever paying our debt and His resurrection from the, from the grave leaving behind an empty tomb, forever destroying Satan's final weapon. The the, the strong man has been bound, and Jesus has set us free. Do you see what's what's happening here? the, The scribes are trying to accuse Jesus of being on evil's side, and He is showing them just how wrong they are. He is the guy who has come to defeat evil once and for all. To be a Christian is somebody who believes that believes what Christ has done for us. And somebody who believes that is forgiven their sins. And if you take that, that's what makes these next two verses, next three verses, a lot clearer. If there's any verses I've probably been asked about more than any other, it's this next part and the the, the parallel parts in the other Gospels. 28 through 30 uh, seems kind of scary. It talks about this unpardonable, unforgivable sin, about uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so people are always concerned, am I I doing that? This is not a, the the wording here is unique for Jesus, but it is not a teaching that is unique to this spot in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Who, Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God Himself in spirit form who lives in you and me, who takes a dead heart and brings it to life and bears fruit. So everybody who believes in Jesus, in the cross and the empty tomb, who's put their faith in Him, We have the Holy Spirit living in us. So to blaspheme that Holy Spirit is to reject Jesus' message, to reject Jesus' teaching, and to say, you're not God, to reject Him altogether. That's what's unforgivable. You can't be saved if you don't believe in Jesus. He has come and He has bound the strong man, And for all who believe in Him, we are set free. We are captives that have been set free, brought out of that captivity. That's what He saved us from. We're no longer captive. But what did He save us to? Outsiders are trying to come in. Insiders are on the outs. Jesus has brought us out of captivity. And then what did He bring us into? He brought us into Himself. Jesus calls us into Himself. With all the inside-outside going on, you got, you got to hear this. Verse 14, it says, He appointed the twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be With him, These apostles, these first disciples, these first followers of Jesus, Jesus places a call on their life. And this is similar to the way He said to four fishermen beside the Sea of Galilee when He said, follow me. And what He said to a tax collector while He's sitting there in His booth, He says, follow me. The fishermen dropped their nets, the toll booth collector, the the tax collector, left that His job. And here's Jesus calling out to the twelve disciples, disciples saying, come up unto the mountain. And here's the goal. Here's the purpose. Here's the first thing that, that he's calling them to, to be with Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. He didn't say, meet me up here on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, between nine and 1030 for the next semester. And we'll have an interesting class together. He, he didn't say, hey, come Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and work, or, or Monday through Friday, uh, 8 to 5, and this will be your job. You just put in 40 hours a week, and you're good. To come, come on Sunday mornings. Let's just do it one time. We'll have a worship service up here on the mountain, one hour a week, and this will be your, your, your Jesus time, and then you're good. Do whatever else you want. Discipleship is coming to be with Jesus not part of the day, not when we want, not when things are good, not when things are bad, not just the I'm in the foxhole or I'm on the mountaintop, all the time, to be with Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. We don't check a box. We follow a man. He's our rabbi, he's our teacher, and we give our whole lives because there's nothing better than being with Jesus. We don't come to Jesus as a means to an end. We don't come to Him in order to get what we really want. He's not just the, 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 the toll we got to go through to get to the other side or the bridge we got to cross to get what we really want. We come to Jesus to get Jesus. Heaven is being with God. That's, that is what we want. And if that's not what you want, then you don't, you don't know Him. You don't know how great He is if there's something else you want instead of Jesus. People come to Jesus because they they want life to be easier or more fun or their needs to be met or finances to work out or things to be more comfortable or happiness or success or marriage or kids or whatever else. They come to Jesus wanting something else. God very well may give you blessings beyond what you can imagine, but He'll never give you anything less than Himself because that's the greatest thing He can give you. He gives us Himself. As a Christian, if you you put your faith in Christ, do you believe that? Do you wake up tomorrow more excited to be with Him than to make money, to achieve some goal, to accomplish some list, to check it off? If so, then you'll enjoy time with Him tomorrow and the next day and the next day. How's How's your time in the Word? How's your time in prayer are you seeking him just to know him, just to be with him? Are you trying to get through him to something else? Jesus calls these disciples and the first thing he does is he calls them to himself. Now you notice it goes out of its way that the passage does and Jesus does to specifically tell us that he calls 12. He calls 12 why why, why 12? And he he names them apostles and he calls them to himself. Well, these, these specific group of people, they, he gives names to, right? He, he calls them apostles, and then he gives Simon, uh, uh, Peter, a new name, right? He he's, was Simon, now he's Peter, and he gives James and John an, a new name, uh, and, and Kathy asked me how to pronounce it ahead of time, and I said, I don't know. You just call it, what did you say? Bo- Bo- yeah, Sons of Thunder, whatever, how have you, you know, I'm the professional here right now. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, just So he's he's naming people. What's going on? Why why all the names? Why does every single one get listed out? Why is that so important that each of these people get names and some of them get renamed? They get new names. Well, if you think about what what's the importance of a name? Why does a name matter? Everyone will tell you that if you see a stray dog or a stray cat, there's two things you can't do if you don't want to keep that dog or cat. You can't feed it and you can't what? You can't name it. Because if you name it, it's yours, isn't it? And the same thing in, in the other direction. When you, when you bought your kids or one day you buy your kids a pet, who, who should name that kid, that, that dog or animal? You should let your kids do it. You know why? Because it gives you a sense of ownership and responsibility. This is, this is one I, I have named. This is my pet. As parents, we take great pride and joy in naming our children. There's, there's some significance and value and worth to that. Because names are powerful. Names are powerful. When we come to Jesus, He he gives us a new name. He calls us one of His own. He calls us disciples. We are one of His. We belong to Him. And it's so freeing and significant to think about that being who we are. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. Different cultures will put our, our different people, different cultures will put our our identity in different things. What's, What's the core of who we are? I mean, think about some of the names that we have. Some of them are, are named about family. So names like Williamson, Isaacson, Peterson, Jacobson, right? Those are all sons of so-and-so. The, the, your name, the core of who you are, is about your family. Many names come from jobs that we have. Baker, Fisher, Mason, Sawyer, Potter, Dyer. I didn't think about that today. Somebody who dyes cloth. That was their job. You have a name that comes from your Job. How would you describe yourself to a stranger? Somebody asks you to introduce yourself, you give your name, and then the first detail out of your mouth. Is it about your family? Is it about your job, your career, where you went to school, students about where you go to school? What, What is that? And I know I'm not, I know it's semantics and you're just trying to introduce yourself. I'm not critical of that. But think about what is you, what do you think is the very core of who you are? Because if it's tied up in a job or a family or a position, What happens if that gets taken away? What happens if that gets taken away? It shakes you to your core. If you lose your job, you lose your family, if something tragic happens, does your identity go with it? Or can you still be you if that thing doesn't exist? Here's Jesus looking at 12 men and saying, I'm naming and renaming you. You are my apostles. You're my disciples. That is the core of who you are. This is who you are. You are followers of Christ. You are Christians. That's who we are. So many athletes, after they retire, just can't figure out life, can they? Athletes have such a short shelf life, so to speak, right? They retire at 30 or 40 or something, you know? And for their whole life up to that point, the definition of who they are has been this star athlete. Now that's taken away and they got to figure out again who, who are they. But listen to what Jesus is offering. He's offering to call us to Himself and to call us by a new name. John 10 tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. You know what the good shepherd does? He calls us by name. He knows your name. He has given you a name. And He calls you to follow Him. And I tell you, man, I need to hear that. It is easy to wrap my identity in this. To feel like this is who I am. But this is no more who I am than you doing what you're doing is what you are. We are Christians first and foremost. Then in verse 35, remember that we had mentioned Jesus' own family had rejected Him. And then our verse for this, this month is, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother or sister or mother. Jesus is elevating this status of being a Christian, being somebody who follows God, being a part of the family of God. That is more important than even our own biological families means you and me and here together. This is what's most important. We are together. Now, ideally, of course, your biological family would also be here too, right? So he's not rejecting biological family. But when biological family is rejecting Jesus, we are closer to other Christians than we are to our own families. And that's what Jesus is doing when he called 12, specifically 12. The first hearers of that message, when they heard 12, they would think of the Old Testament the tribes of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. These became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Moses goes up on the mountain after Israel has left Egypt and he calls the 12 tribes to himself and those 12 become a new nation, a whole people, and they are the people of God. And so here Jesus calls 12 disciples to himself and he's saying this is the new nation of the people of God. God's people are the spiritual descendants of those 12 tribes, 12, 12 disciples. It's no longer about an ethnicity. It's no longer about following an Old Testament law. It's about do you know and follow Jesus? If so, you are a part of the people of God that we have been invited in to be with Jesus and to be with one another. Being a Christian is about being a part of God's family together, the brand new people of God. That we would follow him together. He called them up on a mountain and he called them to himself and to one another. If you are in with Jesus, then you are in with his family. We are each other's ride or die. You know? This is, this is our group of people. This is our family. This is God's family together. We've been saved out of captivity. We've been saved into a relationship with Jesus. And there's one more direction you got to see. Verse 14 and 15, He appointed twelve whom He called apostles so they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and to have authority and cast out demons. You see, we've been called into a relationship with Jesus to be with Him and Jesus sends us out with a mission. Jesus sends us out with a mission. Like the first disciples, when Jesus calls us to Himself, then He sends us out for a purpose. We uh, Alex and I... Alex Cook and I have this podcast we've been working on. We're working on season two. We met with the church planner this week, and he was talking about, I asked him, what when, What do you look for to make a, well, when is a church healthy? When's a church healthy? And he said, you know when a church is healthy? is when it's multiplying, when it's reproducing, when it's making more of itself. You see, if we only come in and never go out, then we'll just huddle up here, and nothing will ever happen. Jesus called 12 to himself, but then he sent them out for a purpose. Our name, our identity, being Christians, comes with a mission, comes with a plan. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created for good works, which God prepared in advance for you. We have work to do. We have a mission to do, which is why we celebrate mission teams. We want to hear back about things that God has done in them and through them, like we heard from a South Dakota team. Tony gives me a call just about every other week with, with a story. If you've gotten a, a Tony call like I have, you know how much you enjoy those. You say, hey, it's, brother, I just got a story for you. And this is how the story goes. I, when he says that, I can write the script for the story he's going to tell me. It's, it's, it's going to be, hey, I met this guy. And then it goes one or two ways. You know, It always starts with, I found a, a way to talk to him about something. Cars, working, whatever, family, grandkids, something. And in one or two ways, either he was a Christian, figure out he was a Christian, and we prayed together. Or figured out he doesn't know the Lord, and I either shared the gospel with him, or uh, invited him to church, or pray with him, or all of the above. You know, because when we're when we're on mission, when we're living to say, "Hey, this is who I am. I'm a Christian. I want to share that with somebody. I want to s- live this out in such a way that other people see him too." You read the the gospels. You read the disciples here being sent, called to Jesus, and then sent out. You say, "Well, oh, I'm not a preacher." It says to to preach and it says they have authority over demons. What? I, that's not me, right? He's saying you have a ministry of word and deed. Word and deed. We go out with a gospel, with a message and we serve, we use our gifts to be a part of the good kingdom that has conquered the evil kingdom. You and I, remember, we're not in charge of binding up the strong man. Jesus has already done that. Now we just live as witnesses to the good kingdom and seeing that kingdom go out throughout the world. I've watched all of you step up to things like volunteer to restart our children's ministry and our nurseries. I've watched you serve around here and around town and around the world. When we use our gifts, we're displaying the one that we love, Jesus. and We're living for His mission. If you're in with Jesus, then you'll be sent out for a purpose. So that's why I started today and end today with the question, are you in or are you out? Because some of the outsiders, they're trying to come in, some of the people who are on the inside are really on the outs. And you got to recognize that we were out in captivity, but Jesus brought us in, and when you come into Him, He sends you out with a mission. You got all that? Here's the key. I'll sum it up for you. Love Jesus. Amen. Love Jesus. Let Him be the very core of who you are. Let Him be the center of your identity. Let Christian be the most important thing about you. And see how God wants to use you in mighty ways. Jesus calls us to be with him, to be with his church, and he sends us out for a purpose. So abide in him and go and bear fruit. Jesus calls us to himself, and then he sends us out with a mission. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to know you and be known by you. God, we we come to these first disciples. In many ways, we are intimidated by some of the things that they do and accomplish later on. We're intimidated by uh, the power they had. But God, we come and we just are honest before You and we recognize that's that's the same Spirit that empowers them and empowers us. So God, we thank You that You have done the work. You have paid the price. You have defeated the grave. And You have called us to Yourself. God, may we not go on pretending that we're on the inside if we're really not. May, if we are on the outside, God, may we come seeking You earnestly and humbly, begging for You to make Yourself known to us so that we can truly walk with You. God, whatever else it may look like, Lord, we we want to be in with You. So God, by Your great power, by grace alone, God, bring all of us along with You up on the mountain to meet with You. And then Lord, send us out. Send us out powerful with a mission, with a purpose, with a plan. Because God, we, we want to be a part of a group of people that makes an impact in this world. Not for our name's sake, but for yours. Before we close the service today, take just a moment to lay your life before the Lord. And ask honestly, are you in or are you out? Are you on the inside with Jesus? Or are you just pretending, going along with the crowd? If you're on the outside, then the invitation's open for you to come in. Jesus preached, if we repent and believe, and we become a follower of Jesus. So if you're on the outside, I'm asking you to come in. Come in and follow Jesus And it will be the greatest thing ever. Repent and believe in Him today. If you are on the inside, if you know Jesus, and I'm asking you to be sent out with a mission, with a purpose, with a plan that God prepared for you, don't sit still for too long miss out on the plans God has for you. Abide with Him and then follow Him. Maybe you want to lay that before God where you're seated. Maybe you want to come before the, the altar today, kneel here, or come pray with me. But I pray that you would let God speak to you in such a way that you're, you know whether you're in or whether you're out and how God's moving and directing your life today. God, move in our hearts. We know only you change us. Only you can change us. So we ask you to do that even now. In Christ's name. Amen.